You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. All right. Today we are joined by Stacy Smallfield and Liz Metzger. I want to thank you both so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise on the show with us today. Happy to be here. Yeah, you're welcome. You two co-authored the Occupational Therapy Practice Guidelines for Adults Living with Alzheimer's Disease and Related Neurocognitive Disorders. Can you quickly define for us what a practice guideline is and how this publication can be used by students, practitioners, and educators? Um, Sure. Well, to start, I just want to point out that while we're the two co-authors listed on the practice guidelines, there were three other uh, occupational therapists that were a part of the process and worked on creating much of the guidelines as well. We just want to give credit and thanks to our other co-authors, Melissa Green, Elizabeth Rodas, and Laura Henley, um, as well as the amazing people at AOTA, especially Beth Hunter and Susan Cahill, who have been instrumental in creating this guideline. Absolutely. It takes a village, especially to come up with a resource as wonderful as this one. Yes, it was a lot of work. But essentially, the practice guidelines are a part of AOTA's practice guideline program, which relies on the integration of information from clinical expertise, preferences from clients, and finding the best available research. The practice guidelines provide information and guidance on the best available research, and they rate how confident a practitioner should feel about a recommendation. So we only do strong or moderate recommendations. We don't provide weak recommendations uh, based on the number, quality, and significance of the studies. Uh, For this practice guideline, we only included meta-analyses. So again, we used the highest level of research for this project. And for the purpose of students, practitioners, and educators, uh, we hope that it's a easy way to synthesize the information that's available out there. I like to say we read all the research, so you don't have to. Um, That doesn't mean that you shouldn't continue to dive into the studies, uh, because again, this is a very big overview umbrella stuff. So for the more detailed minutia of how to actually execute some of the recommendations, I would still recommend going to the literature. Uh, We also... uh, hopefully provide useful information to researchers about the gaps in the evidence and where five years from now, when this project is done again, uh, that hopefully they'll be, they can fill in those gaps and that can improve the evidence to support occupational therapy interventions. I love that. I love that. And I love our interviews about practice guidelines. Um, for one, because it usually means I get to speak with recurring guest Stacy Smallfield, because you've been <laughs> a part of so many practice guideline publications. Um, but also, it's such an important document and resource. Um, so thank you both for your work and for the whole team's work um, on this um, practice guideline. What would you say kind of motivated each of you to focus your efforts and scholarship on Alzheimer's disease disease and related neurocognitive disorders. Yeah, I can go first on that one. Um, my clinical practice is with older adults um, before I transitioned to academia. So certainly a population that is near and dear to my heart. If you're working with adults or older adults in practice, you are going to encounter someone who is experiencing Alzheimer's disease or a related neurocognitive disorder or mild cognitive impairment. We need to know 
about how our, you know, which interventions are most effective for this population. And then in general, I have an interest in chronic chronic conditions and really prevention of chronic conditions through healthy habits and routines. And so, of course, Alzheimer's disease and related dementias um, happen probably in part because because of lifestyle factors or other things potentially along the way. And so I think OTs also have a role in figuring out how we can best support preventive efforts before we get to dementia or the dementia phase. I love that. And how about you, Liz? Uh, Yeah. So I am a practicing clinician and I have always worked in geriatrics. I've wanted to be a geriatric occupational therapist since I was 11. Um, So I've always known that I was going to work with individuals with cognitive impairment, and I've seen those individuals um, across many different settings. Um, I've also been on the board of the Allen Cognitive Network, which promotes the use of the cognitive disabilities model since 2011. So I'm really passionate about identifying interventions that can best support individuals and care partners that are dealing and living with dementia. Um, On a personal level, I have many family members that have been affected by dementia and have definitely received less than best practice care, providing more information to clinicians on best practice here is really valuable and really important. So I I come to it as a clinician that wants to make sure I'm doing what's best, but also want to make sure other clinicians are supporting uh, their patients as well and uh, demonstrating the importance of occupational therapy in this setting with this population. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the time and effort that, that you both put into your care, your practice and, and creating evidence and resources for other practitioners and professionals is, is truly appreciated. Um, I, I had a little bit of a follow-up question. I know the, the title of the guidelines mentions adults living with Alzheimer's disease and related neurocognitive disorders. Um, how interchangeable are neurocognitive disorders, Alzheimer's and dementia in terms of terminology? Um, Why is there kind of that distinction in the language? And what's uh, the importance of really using the the correct terms when talking about this population and this publication? Um, That's a great question. It actually took us a little bit of time to finally land on Alzheimer's disease and related neurocognitive disorders. And in the past, I've used ADRD, so Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. Um, however, this is more specific. Again, dementia is an umbrella term. It's not a diagnosis. And when you look at the research, a lot of it is specifically on people with Alzheimer's disease, which is a unique disease process, and it accounts for 60 to 80% of all people with a type of dementia. But what we also found in the research was information on mild cognitive impairment, which is not the same as dementia. There will be people with mild cognitive impairment that will progress into a stage of dementia or into Alzheimer's disease, uh, but not all of them. And so we wanted to clarify that. Also, for future practice guidelines or just for people's awareness, there are other forms of dementia that we may be seeing. Um, Parkinson's is one of them, uh, and there's a host of other ones as well that we wanted to be inclusive of in our evidence search, even though our research typically either specified uh, like Alzheimer's disease, mild cognitive impairment, um, and in some cases, but not many, it was dementia, but not specified a type of dementia. So we wanted to be inclusive of all of those. 
Thank you. That really clears things up for me. Um, I, I practice uh, in an outpatient pediatric setting um, and, you know, so aren't working with patients who have, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's disease and um, a lot of these related neurocognitive disorders. C- could you both kind of give us a, a idea of what the functional implications of Alzheimer's disease and related neurocognitive disorders uh, may be? Uh, It starts with changes in memory, planning, decision-making, and in general, cognitive decline, right? And so functionally, that means people may have challenges participating in work if if they're working um, or volunteer activities, maybe difficulties managing their household, maybe finances, health management activities, may decline because of that cognitive, those cognitive limitations. Um, then as the condition worsens, it's a progressive decline in cognitive fun- functioning. So then they may, a person with Alzheimer's disease or a related neurocognitive disorder may become more disoriented, have confusion, experience some extreme mood swings or sensory changes. And so this, of course, then leads to things like irritability, wandering, restlessness, anxiety, depression, which all play into someone's ability to um, have healthy social relationships. Again, uh, just ability to go through the day completing all of those, you know, work, leisure, home management types of activities. Sleep also plays into this. They may eventually experience some sleep disturbances. And so then that rolls into performance of daytime occupations, really can lead to an overall occupational performance deficits in lots of areas. Um, Absolutely. I I think anytime someone's experiencing cognitive limitations and decline, really every action that you know, requires conscious thought is is really impacted. Um, if if someone's really you know experiencing these functional limitations, so globally, how would you kind of describe the OT process? Does it does it change, or are there different approaches that a clinician should use when working with adults who have these disorders? I think the process is similar, but what might be different than some of the other adults' diagnoses is the importance of the caregiver or the care partner, as we call them in the practice guidelines, um, because so much of what's going to happen during the progression of the disease is going to require compensation versus remediation. And that's going to have to be provided by something outside of the individual. So in the environment, which obviously includes the care partner. And again, um, each process is so unique because each individual is their own person. So someone may be in the stage same stage of dementia, but the way that their symptoms manifest may be different based upon their prior level of education, their temperament, uh, their preferences. And with that in mind, the clinician really has to do a good job of building an occupational profile and not just identifying the needs of the individual, but the care partner. Uh, who could be a formal uh, care partner, paid care partner, or maybe a family member or loved one as well. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think we've been asked several times why the term care partner rather than caregiver. And that um, that is a word we, we're using intentionally to describe the 
transactional relationship between the people. It's not just a caregiver. It kind of has a connotation of a one-way relationship where care partner, both parties or, or multiple parties are involved in that uh, relationship. And so that's why we're, we're intentional about using the term care partner. Uh, thank you for that uh, clarification. That makes a lot of sense. And especially coming through an OT lens, we want to treat people. And, and that includes working with care partners and, and making sure that their needs and well-being is, is also considered. Um, so that's, that's very important. What would you say are some typical issues associated with with functional cognition? Um, you mentioned, you know, a couple of symptoms and uh, ways that these disorders may um, express themselves in clients. Uh, but what about um, things related to altered perception, thoughts, mood, and behaviors that adults with Alzheimer's disease um, or related neurocognitive disorders may experience? I think that that's like such a big question, right? That that sort of summarizes what we're dealing with, where you need to look at all of these pieces and how they are impacting the person's performance. So inevitably, this is going to impact their relationships and it's going to impact their functional performance. So if somebody has a decline in their ADL function, it could be because they are uncomfortable in the shower space. Their perception of the space is different. It could be volition. It could relate to depression and not being motivated. So there's just so many pieces that could be impacting function. And it can be really challenging to tease all of that out when you're building your occupational profile and when you're looking at all of these performance uh, patterns and it's 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 it can be a very overwhelming experience, especially for new clinicians or when you're looking at integrating best practice. Um, but I think the big piece of this is uh, really identifying what the individual cares about, because unless they care about the intervention that you're trying to execute, it's not going to happen. I love that. I love that uh, recommendation to focus on what the person really cares about. Um, I, I can definitely relate to that feeling of, of being overwhelmed, especially um, when we're working with a client who has uh, a condition like this that can affect them so personally and so globally and in so many different ways. Um, how would you recommend practitioners approach using the practice guidelines publication? Kind of how is it organized and and how should they use it to kind of help with that overwhelming sensation that so many practitioners do feel? Yeah, so um, the practice guideline is organized into a few, you could kind of chunk it into about five or so parts. First part, of course, is a general introduction background to Alzheimer's disease and related neurocognitive disorders, but also a introduction to the practice guideline, what it is, what it's used for, that kind of thing. Then it progresses to the clinical recommendations that came out of the systematic review briefs that informed the practice guidelines. So whenever a practice guideline is developed, it is based on, of course, the um, most up-to-date research evidence. Um, we did those, the systematic reviews in the evidence, and um, that resulted in four systematic review briefs. Um, that are published in AJOT already, but those um, inform those clinical recommendations. The next section, the third section, then after the recommendations that are based on current evidence, then we go to expert opinion 
which um, we do in expert opinions for important or common clinical interventions that we may see in practice that didn't reach the level of an evidence-based clinical recommendation due to the amount of research that that particular intervention has. So there are a few of those in the practice guideline. And then we move to case illustrations. So we have two case examples of cases that might come up in practice, uh, how the clinician in that case can use the evidence to guide their intervention planning. And so um, there's specific assessments that are used, you know, it takes you through the OT process with two cases, everything from the occupational profile, assessments, intervention planning, intervention sessions, how those um, might be, how, how a clinician could code or build for those sessions and then the outcome of that. So we do that with two different cases. And then we end the practice guideline with some knowledge gaps. So we talk about um, things that maybe we're not seeing much in the literature yet that um, we may want to be paying more attention to. So that's how the practice guideline essentially is organized. And if a practitioner, a clinician, student is looking for a particular section, you certainly could jump to the part that you would find most most useful or the things that you're particularly looking for. I don't know that a person would have to read it from front to back to um, find value in it. Absolutely. I, I love practice guidelines. I still remember the first time I read one as a student and I felt like I was cheating um, because there's so much <laughs> knowledge and it's organized so well. And now as a clinician, it's everything that I would need that can really Mm-hmm. answer a lot of my questions is all in one resource in one place. I will say that practice guidelines have evolved over time. They they do look a little different than probably the first one you read. And in a good way, they've transitioned to be even more user-friendly to the clinician. They're not repeating as much inter- information from the systematic reviews as perhaps they once did, but rather are translating those systematic reviews into what can, how can I use this? What does this look like in my practice? And so you'll see the case is much more time spent on case examples. We have epigraphs in this practice guideline that really are like one page cheat sheets that a clinician can keep on their clipboard or hanging on the, their bulletin board at work to refer to easily. So there are more and more knowledge translation pieces in practice guidelines than there were previously. I just, I love that. I love the way you describe that. And and it's really evident in these guidelines, how it supports knowledge translation for the user and for the clinician. Um, Let's go ahead and dive into some of the results of the practice guidelines, starting with those systematic reviews um, that you mentioned. What, What are some of the clinical recommendations or interventions that are most strongly supported by evidence that uh, came from those systematic reviews? So one of the most exciting ones, again, for me as someone that's had this actually sort of started to change the way I think about my own interventions, is cognitive improvement, which is not something one associates with dementia. Uh, The assumption has always been that we can't fix cognition, but what we actually found that there is strong evidence to support cognitive-oriented approaches 
for improving cognitive functioning. Um, so that's really exciting because that means OT interventions that focus on improving cognitive function should be considered on the table. Um, there's also strong evidence that exercise can improve cognitive functioning, um, as well as music interventions, especially when paired with movement, as well as reminiscence interventions. So all of those are useful for cognitive improvement. Um, and just to sort of clarify, we organized articles by outcomes versus interventions. So depending on if I were a clinician looking at this, my first thought would be, if I would like to address this deficit, what intervention should I do? Um, and so the first one is that we identified was cognitive improvement. Um, there was also moderate support for dance, specifically for people with mild cognitive impairment, as well as cognitive-oriented approaches for people with mild cognitive impairment. Um, the second area we looked at was depression, and there was strong support for reminiscence therapy for dementia, as well as moderate support for non-pharmacological interventions for reducing symptoms of depression for people without a diagnosed major depressive disorder. There was also moderate support for addressing depression using music uh, and then physical exercise and uh, cognitive interventions for a mild cognitive impairment, as well as one-on-one -on -one treatment for CBT for anxiety and dementia. Um, what we're seeing also is that there's certain interventions that have positive impacts on multiple areas. So reminiscence is good for depression and cognition. Um, physical exercise is good for both as well. Um, and these are helpful for therapists to consider, like, what's going to be the best um, use of your time? How can you hit on the most uh, problematic areas or areas that need intervention at the same time? Uh, for pain, there was moderate evidence for individualized sensory stimulation to reduce, reduce observed pain in people with dementia. Um, and our final area was caregiver interventions in general. And there was strong evidence for multi-component education interventions, which could include peer or psychological support to address care partners with dementia. And then there was moderate evidence uh, for education and skills training and case management to reduce behavioral and psychological symptoms in individuals with dementia, as well as their care partner reactions, as well as moderate evidence for behavioral activation interventions in the home setting to reduce depression and care. So I just spit out like a ton of words and I realize that now. So I'd say the most useful, for me, the most useful way to process this information would be to go and look at the Evigraph to sort of see how we broke it down there. Um, but if you're an auditorial learner, maybe that made complete sense to you. Hopefully, and hopefully you're listening to this episode with the practice guidelines, you know, open on your screen or at a physical copy so you can um, do that multimodal learning with auditory and, you know, physically as well. Which the um, research supports, right? <laughs> yes, yes, we are. Everything supported by research on this show. We'll get back to our interview right after this quick message. You all know we really try to make research more consumable and applicable on everyday evidence. But did you know that just one minute of your time could help us to improve the show, improve the resources the American Occupational Therapy Association provides for practitioners, and improve the application of evidence to practice within our whole field? Please take our one-minute survey. It's only three questions, and you can find the link in this and every episode's description and support the AOTA in continued efforts to improve our podcasts and to improve the translation of research to practice.
Now back to the interview. As you mentioned, based on the review, um, practitioners should consider using all these different approaches to address pain, behavioral and psychological symptoms, cognition, and care partner support. Um, I'd like to go a little more in depth for each of those and ask you to share some clinical recommendations um, or considerations that practitioners should keep in mind when um, deciding what intervention to use and how to implement it um, and determining whether it's appropriate for their clients or not. Um, So let's start with mental health outcomes for caregivers. What are some clinical recommendations that you would give to practitioners about interventions specifically designed to address mental health outcomes for caregivers? Yeah, I would say um, my first suggestion would be um, using cognitive behavioral strategies or mindfulness interventions for care partners to support, to reduce depression for um, the care partners. Um, My second thing, and I I believe Liz already touched on this, was a multi-component education, so, or psychological support interventions. So making sure that, number one, that they have their own tools and strategies for reducing depression or reducing stress, right? And then that we're also providing them with the education they need to be effective care partners. So those are probably my top two things that I would go to to um, use in support of care partners. And from a time frame perspective, most of these interventions took place over a six to 20 week period. So when thinking about Again, dosage is such a thing that we don't talk enough about and don't research enough. And as a result, I feel like it's impacted our ability to administer sufficient therapy services. So like in home health where I am, for example, right now, typically I can't get more than four or five weeks with a patient. And knowing that interventions that address this typically should last longer than that time period. Um pushes me to request more time from agencies to make sure that I have sufficient time to execute some of these interventions. Absolutely. And that, that's an important advocacy piece. Um, what would you recommend to practitioners who are kind of facing that same dilemma where they need more time? How should they approach um, requesting more time and, and more dosage to be able to provide these interventions in the best possible way? Um, I think it's one building relationships. So I have pretty good relationships with many of the agencies that I contract with. So when I call Samantha at agency, I, um, I know that she knows that I know what I'm doing and I'm not trying to milk them for visits. I can also reference that, hey, I just read the recent practice guideline and the dosage recommendation for this intervention is this. And I think it's going to have a positive implication on our OASIS. Um, And again, like being able to reference the things that the agency cares about, which is that our ending OASIS looks good and demonstrates progress. Um, Also noting that if we can get this caregiver really situated in this education and make sure that they're enforcing all of these strategies, we have a decreased risk of rehospitalization, which is also a big negative for these aid for home health, at least. Um, That is a really big deal. Um, so again, uh, you need to think about not just the interests of your patients, but the interests of your payers. And that's such a good point too. And another reason this practice guideline is such a valuable resource, um, having this 
information and evidence um, and, and instruction on how to apply it can really help practitioners increase their scope and begin to advocate for more care um, that's needed for their clients and increase, you know, the impact that they're having and the overall well-being of clients. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, you mentioned earlier, Liz, uh, some of the uh, evidence supporting reminiscence therapy. Um, what, what additional clinical recommendations would you both give about interventions that address behavioral and psychological symptoms and specifically how reminiscence therapy could be used? So what's really frustrating about a meta-analysis is that it is a giant overview and they don't go into a ton of detail about the actual interventions. Um, and uh, there was a conscious choice made not to deep dive into the specific RCTs that were mentioned in the articles because that would turn into a giant ball of spinning bigger, bigger, bigger. Um, but basically, the way that I see reminiscence being used, especially for the sake of behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, uh, again, is especially with uh, caregivers to help individuals that are having a moment of crisis or struggle um, to ground them in something that they rem that is meaningful to them. So we know that for people with dementia, long-term memory is one of the last things to go. So it can be really comforting to be grounded in something that's happened in your past. So for example, when I was working um, on a subacute rehab community, um, we'd ask family members to bring in pictures so that if their loved one was having a moment of crisis, we could look at pictures from the past that could sort of reorient them to who they were. Um, and that can provide a lot of calm for the individual. Also for care partners, especially informal care partners that have that are in the process of losing the person that they care about, connecting through reminiscence is an opportunity to make sure that they still feel connected to who that loved person loved one was, even if that person doesn't exist as they currently are. Um, so I'd say anything from music. So familiar music, I know people really enjoy that. Um, pictures from the past, um, just talking about past events can be really beneficial for um, making people feel more calm in the moment and also more present. So they're less focused on the anxiety or the sense over sensory stimulation that might be happening and can focus more on who they are and what they're about. Uh, um, just related to the literature on reminiscence therapy, um, most of the studies that have been done are more group-based than individual, but there is, there, there is research that supports reminiscence therapy either as one-on-one -on -one or in group sessions. And the dosage is up to 12 sessions is where the current literature is on that. Thank you. Thank you. It, it sounds like a, a powerful and really a beautiful intervention too that that brings a lot of meaning and has kind of that that grounding effect like uh liz mentioned um and stacy you mentioned mindfulness earlier uh does that kind of tie in with reminiscence therapy and is it kind of using mindfulness and reminiscence at the same time to make sure uh that the invent the intervention is um really effective I would say mindfulness uh, applies probably more to care partner training in this regard rather than to the the person with dementia. Um, so I would lean toward no on that, but I will say that there there is a lot of literature um, in terms of 
addressing depressive symptoms and behavioral symptoms of dementia. Um, there's literature that promotes some of these non-drug interventions like OT, um, cognitive stimulation, and plus exercise, plus social interaction, um, touch, even massage and touch, that these things are um, more effective than a drug intervention for addressing depressive symptoms. So that is something that I think is really important to keep in mind. We have a OT can play a really critical role on the healthcare team by doing some of these interventions rather than turning to uh, necessarily to drug alternatives. That's really impactful. It's a, that's such an important um, piece of information and evidence to keep in mind when when approaching uh, working with this population. Um, you both have mentioned some interventions that are supported by uh, the literature and evidence to in address cognitive decline and cognitive function. Um, can you share some clinical recommendations for how to use um, music, exercise, or dance um, and, and other cognitive therapies to address cognition? Uh, well, what we know is that both group and individual cognitive interventions can be effective, and those can happen from two to six times a week, normally for about 30 minutes is the average for sessions. Um, so that can include also using a cognitive-oriented approach. Um, but again, what we found is a lot of interventions used multimodal interventions. So they didn't just do one thing. It was OT and music, OT and cognitive-oriented approaches. So uh, I'd say that leaning more towards throwing the kitchen sink at things is not necessarily a bad idea. Obviously, you don't want to overstimulate someone or try too many things at once. But based upon the individual's profile and what seems to be they're responding to, it's very useful to do multiple interventions at the same time. So like music combined with movement, those are two intervention strategies that go really well together. But as always, um, clinicians should sort of look at the implications and what's actually happening with their intervention and coordinate and collaborate with other providers to make sure that it's having a positive effect and that potentially other care providers are carrying out components of these interventions as well. Yeah, and I'll add to that and, and saying this is, this is where the expertise of OT comes into play. We know things like music and exercise are very beneficial. So how can we build it into someone's daily routine so that it becomes a habit, right? 30 minutes of, of walking or any kind of group exercise session, right? Every day, whether that's um, someone that's living at home or whether they're living in um, maybe skilled nursing or something like that, right? How can we build in music every day? How can, how, where, what's the time of the day that that's in their schedule so that we're creating just a, uh, reducing potentially the likelihood of depressive symptoms or things like that to, to occur. So think of all, from an OT perspective, I'm thinking about um, if I'm working in a care facility, how can I work with my team to do a routine restorative exercise program? How can I work with activities to do a music type of intervention routinely? How can, you know, so building things into just daily habit is, is where I think the OTs can really shine. 
And for people with dementia, routine is really important. Having a predictable schedule is really valuable. So um, it's a, it's a win win on both on multiple fronts. Absolutely, and you two are touching on on such uh, r- relatable and and important points. Um, you know, I go back to to what I said earlier when, as a student, I got this practice guideline, and I thought, "Wow, this has like all the answers to to what I'm learning right now and what I need to be learning." Um, but at, as is mentioned in this practice guideline, you know, in the real world, once you're a, a clinician and working with people, very rarely will practitioners find an evidence based intervention that perfectly fits their clinical setting and the client's specific needs. Um, so these considerations are um, so important to keep in mind. What, what other advice or recommendations um, would you give to clinicians um, in regard to their clinical reasoning considerations while they're consulting the practice guidelines? Yeah, I would always start with, is it a match, right? Is what's being described in the practice guideline, how close is, does that match the setting that the clinician is currently working in, right? If it is a match, great, go ahead. If it's not a match, I would first want to consider, are there interventions that are a match, a close match with the population I'm working with in the setting I'm working with and those kinds of things? If there's not a match, then we would need to keep in mind, can I still use it or how might I adapt it and use that intervention, you know, if we decide to go that route, my recommendation then is, um, can they collect evidence? Is it is the way they've modified it for their setting or, or circumstance as effective? And we don't know that unless we're collecting some data about that. So is there some outcome data that can be collected to know if the way that it's been modified is is working as intended? Absolutely. And Liz, anything you wanted to add on there? Like to build on Stacy's last comment, like pick good assessments. Uh, if you're going to be doing an intervention that addresses depression, it sounds obvious, but like pick a depression scale that you're actually going to use to measure this because you're doing your own mini research study on every single patient to some extent. And you won't build your own knowledge of what works or doesn't unless you're collecting good outcome measures. Absolutely. Um, I, I really appreciate the care that was put into facilitating the translation of interventions to practice um, with, within the practice guidelines. Um, I, I think one thing that's really helpful, Stacey, you mentioned this earlier, you include billing codes in your case studies um, and are really taking these next steps to help the reader and the user apply what they're learning and apply what they're seeing related to the evidence to their everyday practice. Um, I want to ask you if you could share, you know, a case study or an aspect of the practice guideline that you really enjoy um, that could uh, facilitate that translation of evidence to practice for its readers. Uh, Well, building on the billing codes, we included the new caregiver education codes that are going to be taking effect in 2024. Um, And honestly, it was a challenge because they had never existed before. So we were really excited to practice them and make sure that we were doing it correctly um, so that clinicians know how to apply them because we we're excited that this is a new code, that there's a recognition that we can bill for specifically caregiver education, even if the patient isn't present. So we want to make sure that clinicians know how to do that and feel confident using that code, because we know if we don't use it, they're going to take it away from us. 
Um, so I'm really excited about that. And in general, um, Stacy and I took a lot of care in creating the case studies. They're based on many, many real patients that I've had over the years. And I mean, we obviously have multiple patients that multiple of us have had over the years. And a lot of fun, it was a fun process to identify the interventions and applying the research there. So like if you're looking at how to apply the research via interventions, I think that piece is really nicely translated for clinicians. And there's variety in the two cases. So one is uh, a case where the person with Alzheimer's disease is uh, living at home with a care partner uh, and all of the things that go into the occupations at home and what the care partner is experiencing. And then the second case is um, an adult um, who has already transitioned to skilled nursing and then is having um, some more progression of the dementia. And so you can see examples of how to do things to address the uh, depressive symptoms and how to incorporate a physical activity program and a sensory sensory activities like showering, music, again, physical activity, um, passive range of motion, and how to train caregivers or care partners, both um, family members that visit, but also the uh, staff at the facility, how um, good training can also reduce the work of their care, make it easier for them to care for the um, person. So I like the variety of the, the cases and the interventions, intervention ideas, things that can be incorporated into intervention that, that are, of course, are grounded in the evidence. Absolutely. I think if, if you work with this population and read through and work through those cases, there's so many nuggets and valuable um, examples that are going to spark creativity and, you know, generate light bulb moments for practitioners. I imagine just like, oh, wow, like I can try this with these three clients and, and uh, it's, it's such a valuable resource. Um, it's, it's about time to wrap up, but I want to ask what additional resources related to the practice guidelines or um, best practice in general for working with adults who, who have Alzheimer's disease and related neurocognitive disorders would you recommend to our listeners? Uh, I will always advise people to start at the Alzheimer's Association just because especially they have amazing resources for care partners. They are staying up to date on evidence overall. Um, they have great handouts. Um, they have obviously their 24-hour hotline, which I will always provide to family members, for individual, especially if they're living at home uh, with their care, uh, care partners. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's my number one. Uh, Stacey, what else do you got? Well, that's really great uh, advice. It's hard to beat that. I think in <laughs> general... If we think about how best to take care of ourselves anytime, right? Exercise, nutrition, sleep, stress management, social participation, having some mindfulness, time for mindfulness, right? It, we're, we do all of those things to take care of ourselves and maintain our own self-care. And, and that translates to anyone we're working with. So making sure, again, habit and routine as best possible, addressing exercise, sleep, managing stress, social time, those, you, um, you just can't go wrong, I think. I love that. Those are 
wonderful recommendations and resources. Um, and I'll make sure to link the Alzheimer's Association in our episode description so our listeners can check that out. Um, we end every show with the golden nugget segment. And I just have one last question for you both. If you could share one piece of advice or one recommendation with practitioners, what would it be? Uh, keep it person slash care partner centered. And mine would be build in habit and routine. I love that. I think AOTA should start selling stickers with those slogans. I would wear them both on my water bottle. <laughs> That's great. Um, Stacy, Liz, it's been uh, so great speaking with you today. Thank you for sharing um, all of your knowledge and giving us a sneak peek into all the work that goes into a practice guideline and uh, sharing how practitioners can really use this resource to up their game um, and provide higher quality of care to the clients that um, they care about and, and really need it. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for all Thanks, of you, all that you do for AOTA and occupational therapy uh, as well. Your Just your passion for podcasts and getting that evidence out to people who can use it um, is so important and you're making just a really important contribution as well. So thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you. That was really <laughs> sweet. <laughs> You're welcome. It's, it, it's truly my pleasure. And Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.